is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today, we are interviewing two guests from the Wildlands Network who are based in the Southwest. Michael Dax is the Western Program Director for the Wildlands Network and is located in Santa Fe. Michael earned a bachelor's degree at Brandeis University. He's worked in both the Grand Canyon and Yellowstone National Parks. He holds a master's degree in environmental history from the University of Montana, where he began work on his book, Grizzly West, which focuses on efforts to reintroduce grizzlies to the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness in Montana and Idaho. Aaron Faka is a senior wildlife biologist, Western Region for Wildlands Network. He coordinates research on species core habitats and species connectivity. His undergraduate degree is from New Mexico University. His PhD in zoology was earned at North Carolina University. He spent the last 20 years working on for a variety of state agencies on diverse vertebrate species in their habitats. Aaron has worked on the reintroduction of populations of fishers, black-footed ferrets, and prairie dogs, with that as a central theme of his research. So welcome, gentlemen. It's great to be talking with you out of New Mexico. Thanks so much for having us. So let's... Let's start with you, Michael. Uh, what are your responsibilities as Western Program Director for Wildlands Network? Uh, so here at the uh, Wildlands Network, we our organization is bi-national. Um, we have uh, programs focused in uh, both U.S. and Mexico, um, and our Western program covers the four corner states of New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, and Utah. And so as Western Program Director, I oversee all of our work um, across those four states and make sure that our different projects, as well as our policy work and our science work that Aaron leads are all coordinated together so that there's um, central themes that, that tie our work together and make sure that we are moving towards our objectives in a unified manner. Does your job involve moving around a lot, traveling? Uh, a fair amount. You know, I think we're, we're lucky where we have a lot of our projects focused in northern New Mexico and southern Colorado, uh-huh. where both Aaron and I are based. We also have our Colorado project manager, who is in southern Utah, and so we do a fair amount of work in the Grand Staircase uh-huh. region. And then on the border as well, our border program coordinator is based at a Tucson, Arizona, and he is leading our work across the borders the U.S.-Mexico border in both New Mexico and Arizona. Uh So, Aaron, as senior wildlife biologist for the Western region, what are you focused on currently? Primarily, responsibilities are to, you know, bring the the scientific perspective to things, and that could involve identifying research or evaluating research that other people are doing, um, making comments about specific policies that we have or giving insight into um, what likely outcomes might be or how might we might study it, set up a study. I also, you know, set up studies for our, our programs, doing analysis or working with other colleagues to, to do science. And so right now we have probably three or four different areas that we really have been focusing on in terms of scientific study. And we kind of 
think of those in systems-based, like prairies or deserts and, and mountains, which are pretty common in the West, as you probably know. But we're doing a lot of stuff in desert grassland systems right now where we focus on, on pronghorn and prairie dogs and to some lesser degree um, other carnivores like black-footed ferrets, badgers, uh, kit foxes, those sorts of things. And that's higher elevations in, in the montane region. We work on things like uh, martens, lynx, and hares as sort of indicators of those systems. And then when we have talking about genetic connectivity or other programs, we do a lot of work with ungulates that people are, are very aware of, deer and elk, pronghorn, uh, bighorn to a lesser degree, and then carnivores, bears, mountain lions, wolves to some degree, and, and then other carnivores that I've mentioned. Well, both of you came to my attention when I saw that you're concerned about energy development in the Four Corners area of Utah, Arizona, Colorado, and New Mexico. So what's the landscape like down in that area? So the, the Four Corners is... Uh, pretty easily definable in a kind of a generic way as just the intersection of the four states that Michael has mentioned. But I really kind of like to think of it as the San Juan River as being a central piece to the Four Corners region. And that starts at very high elevation up in the mountains near um, Pagosa Springs or above Pagosa Springs, which is, I think, close to 12,000 feet of elevation. And it terminates at Lake Powell, which is right about 4,000 feet of elevation. And so as you make that transition, you, you start at very high mountains with spruce, fir, aspen, going into pine types of forests, and then pinyon, juniper types of woodlands, sage, other types of, of shrublands down into more desert types of lowlands, um, have a lot of kind of that sandy influence or sedimentary right. rock yeah. that you might be familiar with. This. Right. You've been to Moab or seen images of Moab, kind of slick rock, uh-huh. red rock, and that tends to be a little bit considerably drier, so we have a lot of shrubs and a lot more grassland that becomes a, a lot more uh, open in those types of areas. And then from the, the human kind of component, we have a lot of resource extraction in this area, so we have large coal mines that have historically fed our coal fire power plants. There's at least two of them right in this region. We also have a lot of oil and gas extraction, and then we have quite a history of grazing, both things like sheep cattle, horses. So it's a pretty diverse landscape. And then there's a lot of different agencies or groups that own the land. And that can be uh, different tribes that are right in the area, federal land like the BLM, the Forest Service, lots of, of private land as well. So it's uh, it's a really you know, unique and, and diverse area. You know, when you drive through the area, you think of it as pretty flat, arid desert. So I guess you don't see the the high country when you're when you're driving through. So. Not right through Farmington or even if you go to the Four Corners Monument. But like I said, if you if you kinda of take that perspective of having the San Juan River, um then you can get it you can get on the mountains really quickly, you know, within just a, a forty five minute drive or something from that area. Right. Well specifically, uh you were you were both concerned about a proposed solar project and its effect on wildlife. So what are your concerns? What are you focusing on right now? Yeah, so it's not just a, a single project that we're concerned about, but more the general rush towards full energy and specifically utility-scale projects that could eliminate access to large blocks of habitat for most medium to large mammals. Um, so in the Four Corners uh, specifically, 
as Aaron just mentioned, land ownership is highly checkerboarded and environmental reviews aren't designed to account for cross-jurisdictional impacts. So, for example, a review completed by the BLM doesn't have to account for the cumulative impacts and what are the combined effects of projects with neighboring projects on state land or tribal land or private land. Um, and uh, Aaron had mentioned the, the coal-fired power plants. Um, the uh, the San Juan Generating Station was closed at the end of last year, and as part of that, it's going to be replaced with a significant amount of solar energy. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, across the West, um, with many utility-scale projects, whether it's wind or solar, they're, you know, out in rural areas, and getting those um, projects, getting that energy that's generated back into the grid requires the construction of these big transmission lines. But because of those power plants that are already there, there's already a significant amount of transmission capacity on the ground. So we're going to see a lot of utility-scale development of renewable energy, and especially with solar projects. You know, when they're doing, whether it's a 2,000-acre project, a 10,000-acre project, or a 30,000-acre project, they sent off those, those blocks of, of solar panels, which, you know, effectively eliminates them from use by, you know, both wildlife right. as well as livestock. So what happens when you simply take 30,000 acres of habitat off the map? And what we are most curious about is asking those questions um, and, you know, doing a study that we will be doing in the Four Corners area over the next four years, developing answers that um, can be used by both developers as mm. well as regulators as we're moving forward in um, putting more of these projects on the ground. So uh, these would be these would be privately developed projects on mostly public land. Is that right? It will be a variety of public land, tribal land in New Mexico, and I think in many Western states you have state land too, which is you know also public land in addition to federal land as well as private land. So you're going to have a lot of different you know you know especially depending on the area, the Four Corners being one of those, you're going to see projects develop on all different land types. So we usually think of solar generation as goods since it replaces fossil fuel energy. Uh, and in the Four Corners area, it could conceivably be a possible replacement for energy generated at Glen Canyon Dam on the Colorado, which is experiencing low water and possibly generation failure. So are there there are multiple locations around that are being proposed in the area? Or is it, hasn't it gotten it to that stage yet? There are multiple sites, and it kind of depends on the scale that you think of as a site. And so, for example, here right in the four corners, when we talk about the San Juan Generating Station, which is being decommissioned and will be replaced by solar energy, there are multiple sites that could be right in that, that footprint that would replace some of the energy development. Some of those could occur on private land. Some of those could occur on public land. And then, as we've discovered, some of those are also being concurrently developed on, on two different tribal lands. And none of those entities necessarily talk with one another. But in addition to that, as you know, power production grows, and you may not be aware of this, but New Mexico is supposed to be completely um, energy, renewable energy by 2040, I believe. Michael, mm -hmm. correct me on that if I'm wrong. But mm -hmm. um, lots of other places, not just within that footprint, 
are going to be proposed. And as you know, more power plants are taken offline and you have that, that structure of transmission already, those sites will initially be probably proposed and then developed as well. And I know uh, I can't speak about any specifics, but tribal lands are being uh, not maybe not quite inundated, but there are numerous proposals for development on their, their lands as well. And so it's not just sort of one or two places. It's, it's many places throughout the Southwest and the West in general. How are the tribes responding to these ideas? Well, largely, and, and this is a thing that we've discovered, is that no one really knows exactly what some of the impacts are or necessarily how to proceed, but everyone is largely positive about the idea of renewable energy, which I think we all you know, agree is, is at least a very strong motivator to, to going forward. But there's a lot of just tension and lack of knowledge about either baseline information for wildlife or other natural resources and exactly how those are supposed to respond, where you might place these sites optimally to reduce those kinds of conflicts, and what sort of long-term effects there might be. And so I think there's a, a good mix of optimism but also of caution. And from the talks I've had with tribal folks, that seems to be largely what they're thinking, but I, I probably tend to think more optimism than, than pessimism, but still a lot of unknowns. So the sites would mostly be on the flat prairie land rather than on the hills and mountains, is that right? That seems to be true for right now. Who knows what will happen going forward, but right now it seems like the areas that are prioritized are largely places without a lot of tree cover that are relatively flat because they're easier to develop, and then places that are in good proximity to existing transmission lines and, and power plants. So I assume that the tribes are concerned about uh, any of their historic artifacts being affected and archaeological sites. We're trying. We certainly wouldn't want to speak for any of the tribes, but I, I would imagine that that could be part of their concerns. So specific sites haven't been identified. It's the general concept that's uh, being discussed right now. Specific projects that are slated to happen um, and ones that already have happened. There's a project outside of Hesperus, Colorado, that is going through the permitting process right now right around the decommissioned San Juan generating station that Aaron mentioned. There is solar that is slated to happen that the developer recently presented to the San Juan County Commission. And then there are other projects also um, happening in this region. I know Aaron has come across things on, you know, adjacent to private land. There's some stuff happening closer to Gallup and, you know, all these projects are at different stages of the permitting process and, you know, designs are at different stages of being finalized. But there are projects definitively moving forward. Some we know exactly where they are. Some we have a, a general idea where, of where they are. And others, you know, we know a little bit about but aren't able to, to talk about too much more in detail about. What are the wildlife species that you're mostly concerned about being affected by these projects? The wildlife species that we've really identified as what we're calling brella or maybe a flagship species is pronghorn. They obviously live in kind of very similar types of habitat that a lot of the work we've described is going to happen, flat areas with lots of solar radiation. And there's a, a relatively small herd right near the San Juan Generating Station, which I have identified and have kind of known for a long period of life, but of my life, but there's not a great deal of, of baseline information. Paul Sawyer, who's a, a researcher out of Wyoming, has done a study this past year showing the effects of at least one solar um, development site 
on pronghorn. And as Michael mentioned, these areas are completely fenced off. So it completely excludes pronghorn from accessing specific habitat types. It could also potentially cut them off from moving to other areas or for things like mating purposes, finding other populations of, of pronghorn or other groups of pronghorn. So we're, we're really concerned about them. We're also interested in their effects on other prairie types of, of species. So badgers, coyotes, foxes, prairie dogs, um, other animals that might be reliant on things like prairie dog colonies, so burrowing owls, even raptors, you know, eagles, those types of things. Those are sorts of the suites of, of species we're most concerned with right now, which doesn't suggest that there might not be other species that could be affected. Are there, well, how about reptiles, uh, snakes, and turtles? I, I would certainly be interested in, in snakes, toads, lizards. They tend to be able to pass through fences and, and things a bit easier, but clearly the areas that are being developed are going to have way different types of resources and vegetation than they did beforehand. So it isn't a focus of our current study that, that we have ongoing, but we would love to learn more about the effects on those species as well. So you mentioned some birds. Uh, how would birds be affected by uh, by these solar projects? Well, for some species, if we took burrowing owls, for an example, if we had large areas of, of prairie dog populations that were removed, um, those burrows covered up, then you might remove nesting sites and, and areas that burrowing owls like to live in. So that would be a direct um, type of consequence. Um, there's been some research that's at least proposed the idea that some species of, of waterfowl might actually uh, mistake the, the solar panels for a body of water from the air uh. and try to land directly in those and cause sort of a, a direct mortality in that way. Um, you could also just re be removing um, prey animals that golden eagles or even bald eagles might be relying on. So if you had a massive impact on hares and, and rabbits and, and things like that, you might reduce the prey base. And so, again, this is largely a, a very fertile area of, of research, but not a great area of what the direct costs are going to be on wildlife. And so that's a lot of what we're trying to understand is exactly what's going to happen. But those are some, some potential things that could be going on with birds. Are there any economic considerations, uh, particularly among the tribal groups who want to lease land? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's one where um, it's uh, th that's certainly not where our expertise is. Um, but I would imagine that energy independence um, on behalf of um, tribes is certainly a goal. Is certainly one of the things that's attractive about renewable energy. Um, you know, whether it's tribes or kind of uh, the country as a whole, is or you know even homeowners um, being able to independently produce your energy is definitely attractive. So, are you, you're engaged in a study? Is that correct? And uh, you, what what is your what's the process that's involved that that you're uh, working on? Yeah, so we were awarded a Department of Energy grant this past year to study the effects to some degree, but what we really hoped to do is to give some insight into how to, to site or place these utility-scale solar developments on the landscape so they have the minimum impact on wildlife. And what we're doing with the study is to use various habitat and connectivity models that we are aware of 
to predict what areas might be the best places to avoid for pronghorn. And then we also want to see if what pronghorn uh, might use are the same types of areas that other wildlife species might use, so prairie dogs, badgers, um, those sorts of, of species. And so we'll actually be, about this time next year, hopefully placing collars on uh, about 60 pronghorn um, in two sites, and then we'll track those to see if our evaluations of, of habitat and connectivity are borne out by what pronghorn actually do. And we'll also be placing a variety of non-invasive surveys, things like remote cameras or trail cameras, flying drones, and seeing if those kinds of methodologies give us the same kind of impressions about what pronghorn are using as the actual collared telemetry information, which is sort of the, the finest scale resolution that we could get on information. So you're concerned the idea that all of this information will be useful for developers and agencies going forward and how to monitor and then how to select sites um, before they actually place these, these developments. So that's the ultimate goal of the studies to kind of uh, bundle all of that stuff into, into one useful package. So you're concerned about uh, projects that would interfere with uh, movement corridors that are used by pronghorn and other animals? Uh, definitely. That's one of our, our primary concerns and, and interests. And to give you a little bit more context, you know, so right right now in the in the four corners, very little is known about this pronghorn population. So theoretically, it's possible that you know you could build a project directly in some sort of migratory path, or you know, access to water, or some other key um, habitat element. I think what you know becomes more interesting, especially in areas where you do know um, more information about whether it's mule deer or pronghorn or whatever the, the species of concern might be, is you know let's say there is um, a migratory route or a corridor. Um, how far away should should a project be to not disrupt that corridor? Is it a quarter mile? Is it a half mile? Is it a mile? Those are sort of questions that we don't currently have answers to. That. Um, our hope is with our study that we'll start to begin to answer some of those questions to be able to provide direction to both regulators as well as developers as they develop projects so that, you know, especially as these um, development of this kind of solar on this scale continues over the coming decades, that we get that information as soon as possible so that we are not just trading the impact of oil and gas for the impact of renewable energy but that renewable energy can be a true net benefit, not only from a climate standpoint, but also from a habitat standpoint. Are there other organizations you're working with to engage in this study? Yeah, right now um, with our study, we are directly working with the Navajo Nation, uh, the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, New Mexico Game and Fish, New Mexico State Land Office, um, the Bureau of Land Management, um, and then we have other partners um, like Geosystems Analysis, who's a consultant um, that works on wildlife and energy projects. We're also engaging other other partners um, in the conservation space, both local organizations and national organizations, who have varying expertise, um, whether it's you know what's happening locally on with these renewable energy projects or, you know, kind of on a national scale when it comes to modeling um, and geospatial tools and things like that. How, how large is any one particular solar project? Uh, they range. You know, some projects might be under 1,000 acres, and we've 
heard of a, a couple projects that are in the range of 30,000 acres. Holy smokes. Wow, that's huge. Wow. And those tend to just be, you know, the initial projects. Yeah. I think utility-scale solar energy is defined as a, a one-kilometer squared project. But what happens, and, and one of our colleagues who's seen this kind of thing happen in the Mojave Desert, more focused around desert tortoises, is you get, you know, a bunch of, of projects, and then that just makes it more attractive to build additional projects. And so 10,000 acres might, through the course of 10 or 20 years, turn into 30, 40, or 50,000 acres of, of projects. And so what exactly the final project will be, we don't know, but that's sort of one of our interests and, and concerns. So describe a solar project. Are the panels that are installed four or six feet high? Are they separated in any way? What does a project look like? Are there different types of projects? There are many types of, of projects that could be conceived of, but generally, you know, you have an area that's essentially blocked off um, completely. You have either gravel or some sort of a concrete footing that the panels are placed on. And then you obviously need uh, battery storage to either send that that current to be stored before it goes into existing power lines. Uh, but those those areas with the the panels can be separated potentially into smaller, you know, acre at a time types of things that are fenced off, mm-hmm. placed into one really large um, area. We've heard of some projects that are trying to accommodate for things like migration pathways of elk, where they're giving a thousand yard kind of, of path in between two different large areas. So there are a variety of different configurations. And, and that's one of the things that I think we're hoping to, to learn a little bit is, could you configure this differently to have, have minimum effects on, on, on wildlife of, of different varieties? Are these projects fenced off so that animals can't crawl underneath? Certainly not large animals like pronghorn or coyotes. They're fenced off, and, and they really can't, A, crawl under there, and there wouldn't be much, I think, developers have an aversion to that kind of access because it could potentially mess with the panels or any of the circuitry or wiring. I'm speaking a little bit out of, of school on the exact uh, fears going in there, but um, small animals potentially can live in. But the secondary thing is there's just not a whole lot going on vegetatively once those panels are installed. And so there's just a lot of unknowns in terms of what animals will use that in their effects. What's, what's the time horizon that you've got on this project, this study? We hope to begin uh, this April, and it will go four years through the spring of 2027, at which point we'll be putting out final reports. But we do hope to be providing periodic updates at conferences related to both wildlife and solar um, over that four-year period. So, you know, this won't be a, a completely, uh, you know, we go into our, our hole and, and do our research for four years and don't come out until then. Um, we hope to be able to provide some periodic updates, but not until 2027 will we have any sort of final results or conclusions or insights to provide to, to both developers, uh, regulators, and the public. Well, I, we're, we're getting low on time, so I just want to ask you, are there some other issues you're, you're working on in the area, like fossil fuel extraction or drilling or mining? For the most part, um, we don't work all that much on um, extractive energy uses, um, except when there's a direct 
Wildlife Nexus, um, but we did, um, at the beginning I mentioned the border wall. Uh, we produced a map of the border wall a couple of years ago, and then last year in 2022, uh, we produced a report um, highlighting prioritized areas in need of restoration where um, border wall construct construction um, left a scar on the landscape. Um, so we continue to advocate for restoration of the border, and we currently have a camera project um, occurring on the border in Arizona documenting um, how the wall might be impacting wildlife's use of that area and their movement patterns. Um, and then Aaron also um, briefly mentioned Pacific Martin, um, and right now uh, we have um, 40 cameras that are um, in northern New Mexico um, looking for both Pacific Martin as well as um, lynx and snowshoe hare in hopes of getting some baseline information about the status of Martin populations in northern New Mexico, which is the southern extent of their range. Um, and then we have a number of other projects as well. Um, the last I'll, I'll mention, though, is on the policy front where we're working to get money for road crossings, for wildlife crossings, underpasses, overpasses, things like that in all the states we work in, not just in the West, but um, our other colleagues in California, the Pacific Northwest, and Southeast, working to secure um, funding so that we can construct more overpasses, underpasses, and ensure safe passage for wildlife. Right. Well, gentlemen, we are out of time, but I really appreciate your telling us about the project you're engaged in. Uh, so thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Our guests today have been Michael Dax and Aaron Faca of the Wildlands Network uh, down in New Mexico. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.